the church has a problem. And if we're a part of the church, that means you and I have a problem. Recent studies have revealed that the thought patterns and the moral choices and, and the behavioral trends of Christians aren't all that different from people who are not Christians. Sexual immorality, materialism, racism, spousal abuse, the neglect of, of the most needy in society are as much a problem in evangelical churches as they are in society as a whole. Ron Sider's penetrating book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, presents the evidence of this problem that is destroying our witness and, and distorting the, the power and the presence of Christ and causing far too many Christians to live lives that are spiritually weak and failing, weary, distressing, hopeless. As this disturbing evidence unfolds, many people have come up with answers to the problem. But it seems to me that one of the most profound answers that we can give to this crisis is to go back to, to one of those signposts, to one of those places where the church has been moored throughout all of its existence. One of those places where God's people have looked to for help and guidance and understanding about who God is and about what it means to be one of God's children. And this answer takes us back to some ancient words that I think are as timely and probably as famous as any we may know. These words are what we call the Ten Commandments. Now, through the centuries, and probably maybe more so in more recent times, the Ten Commandments have been both revered and rejected. They, they have been embraced and scorned at the same time. There's been a uh, sort of a resurgence of interest in the Ten Commandments lately. I did a search on uh, Amazon's website and just typed in Ten Commandments, and I was astounded at all of the things that came back at me. Here are a few things that you can purchase on Amazon related to Ten Commandments. Of course, you can purchase the Ten Commandments, the movie, you know, 1956, Charlton Heston, Yul Brenner. You can purchase a, a CD by Ozzy Osbourne, rock and roll singer, or whatever, I don't exactly describe his music. Uh, of the Ten Commandments. That's the title of it. I didn't buy it. I don't know what's on it, but it sounded interesting to me. You can buy a Ten Commandments tablet pen or Ten Commandments magnet or a 14-karat yellow gold Ten Commandments bracelet. You can buy Ten Commandment mouse pads that have little cartoons of each of the Ten Commandments on them. You can get a set of ten. You can buy Ten Commandments coffee gift baskets and light switch covers and pen holders and sticky notes you can buy a Moses and the Ten Commandments watch. I'm assuming it's Moses' arms they go around, but I'm not sure. A Ten Commandments mug, a Ten Commandments napkin holder, and keychain, and baseball cap, and book bag, and a chocolate candy mold of the Ten Commandments, so that you can eat the Ten Commandments, I guess. 
And there are a lot of books about that use the name Ten Commandments that really don't have anything to do with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments of Mind Power Golf is a book you can buy. The Ten Commandments of Dating. The Ten Commandments of Defensive Line Play, which I'm assuming has something to do with football. Ten Commandments of Bingo. The Ten Commandments of Self-Esteem. There's a book called The Thin Commandments. The Ten No-Fail Strategies for Permanent Weight Loss. And the one that it probably intrigued me the most is A Witch's Ten Commandments. Magical Guidelines for Everyday Life. I was trying to figure that one out completely. But the Ten Commandments are famous in other ways as well. On July 31st of 2001, Judge Roy Moore had a two and a half ton stone placed in the rotunda of the Alabama Supreme Court building. Now, I don't think a lot of people probably would have paid much attention to this big block of granite. It had writing on it, uh, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, various things, and people probably wouldn't have paid that much attention except that engraved on the face of it was the Ten Commandments. And it sparked wide debate. It sparked uh, uh, protests of all kinds. And eventually, Judge Moore lost his position as the chief Supreme Court justice of the state of Alabama over putting that granite piece of block there. His case is probably the most public. It's certainly not the only one of its kind. There's an estimate that there are as many as 4,000 Ten Commandment markers that were put in various places throughout this country, particularly in the 1950s and 60s. Some of them intended to advertise the famous movie. And in the past few years, numerous lawsuits have been filed attempting to, to take down these monuments and other public displays of the Ten Commandments. And I don't know how you feel about all of that, but it certainly seems to tell us something about how people view these commands of God. But you know, even in the church, there is resistance to the Ten Commandments. A London newspaper survey a while back found that almost two-thirds of 200 Anglican vicars were unable to name the Ten Commandments. And one vicar's reasoning for not knowing the commandments was, well, they're very negative. I strongly suspect that this opinion is not limited to a few British clergymen. And how different the words of David in the 19th Psalm, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The, decree, the decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And the commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. And I have a feeling that we don't tend to see the commandments of God the same way David does. And then we wonder why the church is in crisis. I think we need a new perspective on God's commands. I think it would be wonderful for us to revisit them and to hear what God has to say to us through them. And this, the Sundays of this fall, that's exactly what we're going to do. Each week, taking a microscopic look at each one of those commandments. But it seems to me that before we can do that, we need to get an understanding of, of where these commandments come from and the purpose that God has in giving them. You know, most of us are going to respond in one of two ways to the commandments. Some people are, 
are wondering why we would spend so much time on something so familiar. I mean, yeah, they're important, but, you know, I've been a Christian long enough, I've, I've kind of moved past those. I'm on to other things. Let me remind you of Jesus' conversation with the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and said, how do I get eternal life? And Jesus said, obey the commandments. And he said, I've done them all. I'm good with those. I've checked them off. And Jesus said, then go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And the man walked away from Jesus. And Jesus may not, God has more in store for us. There's always something more in our walk with God. A deeper path, another step to take. When we start thinking these things may not be all that applicable to us, we need to understand they are always applicable to us. It's not as though the commandments are some lower stage of godliness. They're the core of godliness. The Ten Commandments are an explanation or a revelation of what it means to be God's people in a world that rejects God and His people. And as these commandments unfold, it's clear that God is saying to us what He has always said, that if you want to be my people, you commit yourselves to love me and to love others. I mean, you can see the division in the commandments that the first four are about a relationship with God and the last six about a relationship with one another. And they are interwoven together. That's how Jesus summarizes all the commandments of the Old Testament. It's how the apostles explain the Christian faith. Everything keeps coming back to this. Scripture keeps repeating it, I suspect, because we're pretty hard-headed in getting it. It's the heart of the commandments. Loving God, loving one another. And I don't think any of us are done with that yet. You know, evangelicals have a tendency to believe that as long as we believe the right things about God and as long as we do the right things and don't do the wrong things, then we're okay. And it's important how we treat other people, but not nearly as important as how we feel about God. But the commandments tell us something different. How we treat other people is of vital importance. Too often the evangelical church has missed that. I mean, why else would the evangelical church have fought against the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s? Why else would, would uh, the evangelical church ignore the glaring needs of so many who are in the margins of society? Why else would people in evangelical churches fight all of these battles about things so inconsequential as the color of the carpet or the style of worship? I mean, John the Apostle tells us, if you don't love your neighbor, you don't really love God. This is love for God. You obey my commands. And that always involves loving other people as well as loving God. You know, we've been told it's all about grace, and it is. Anything good in us, anything good that we're able to do is rooted in God's grace, only possible because God has extended His grace to us. But our response to God's grace is important too. And the Ten Commandments are one of the central elements that define and clarify our response as we hear God's call to love Him and to love other people. 
I think sometimes we get so enamored with God's forgiveness, as important as that is, that we forget that forgiveness is the first step on the pilgrimage, not the last. Repentance and forgiveness are the beginning stages of our journey, and discipleship and obedience and surrender are continually in front of us. God is not looking for people who have this mindset of trying to sneak into heaven. I mean, if our concern is just trying to be just good enough, maybe that's an indication that we really don't have a serious or want a serious relationship with Christ. Because we're willing to live so far below the plans and dreams that God has for us. Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commands. I sometimes wonder if, if, our, if our, our feelings, are so intense feelings about the public displays of the Ten Commandments might be a way of, of hiding the difficulties we have in obeying the Ten Commandments. I mean, which upsets us more? That the courts have taken down a display of the Ten Commandments or our inability to consistently obey the Ten Commandments. We need to be careful that we understand that, that these, these commandments of God are a response to His grace. But how we live as, as people of God, they're not something that just anyone can do. I mean, are they good moral teachings? Yes. Will society be better if people attempt to follow them as opposed to not following them? Of course. But unless the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, these commands are as attainable as a, as a command that someone might give us to, to dunk a basketball or to kick a 50-yard field goal or to, to bake a perfect souffle or to swim across the Atlantic Ocean or to paint a great masterpiece. You know, in one way... It's a bit misleading to post the commands out in the public places of our country. I mean, it's a good reminder about what morality and ethics ought to be. But on the other hand, it gives the impression that if people just try hard enough, work hard enough, strive hard enough, yeah, anybody can obey them. You can do it. But it's not true. There's only one way to live those commands, and it's by surrendering our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit. They're a response to the grace of God at work in people who've opened their lives and their hearts to God. Will Williman, who for years was dean of the chapel at Duke University, tells about uh, the year at commencement at Duke when uh, newsman Ted Koppel came to speak. He said it was one of the most well-received commencements that he could remember. And Koppel got up and he began to talk about all the problems in America. And he detailed them, and then he asked the question, how are we going to deal with this? How, how do we do something about this? And his answer was to recite the Ten Commandments and to share just brief words about each of them. And he said that if Americans would just follow those ethical guidelines, we would have no moral problems in America. Now, no doubt... Willeman said, if Americans would adhere to the Ten Commandments, we'd certainly be in a better place to live. But to imply that the Ten Commandments are just ethical principles that are applicable to all Americans is to miss the reason God gives them. 
You can't understand the commandments apart from worship of the true God. Will society be better because of them? Of course. But the Ten Commandments are meant for people who know personally, intimately, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of Jesus Christ. It's, how, it's the way that we learn to worship God faithfully and truthfully. Not the way to make American democratic pluralism work. And that's why, before God ever gives them the Ten Commandments, He calls Israel to remember who He is and what He's done. Because these commandments are grounded and rooted in remembering God. Now, there's something powerful about remembering events from the past. Obviously, I, I wasn't present when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. But I've been to Ford's Theater. And I've walked across the street to the Peterson boarding house where Lincoln died. And I've gone to the memorial and read his inaugural addresses. And my heart has been stir, stirred with the, with the agony and the pain and the turmoil of those days. I was in high school when the Vietnam War ended. But I remember. When I went to Washington and, and, and I stood before that memorial wall, my heart was moved once again and my emotions went back to those days of, of fear and apprehension about that war in Vietnam. And I wasn't alive during the horrors of the Second World War when Hitler's iron fist held the world in its grip. But I've been to Normandy. And I've stood on the beaches. And I've walked among the graves of the white crosses. And I've been to Manila, and I've touched those huge granite walls inscribed with the names of all the sailors who were lost at sea. And I've looked out on endless rows of white crosses and white stars of David, the people who were lost. And I wept over that pain and agony of those events. There's something about memory that helps us regain perspective that we so easily lose. Memory can cause us to see life in the world much more clearly than our limited perspective typically allows us. And the Ten Commandments cannot be understood until we remember the one from whom they originate. It's not a coincidence that when God introduces the law to his people, he does so reminding them, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you. I'm the one who set you free. I'm the reason you have a hope and a future. I'm the reason you're no longer bending underneath the whip of Pharaoh. I'm the one who loves you. And these commands can only be understood in the context of redemption. I think we, we struggle with these commands because we forget that truth. You know, we, we read them and, and even in the church, they, they do seem negative to us and sometimes a bit legalistic to us. That's because we've forgotten 
that the Ten Commandments are a gift. A gift that originates from the heart of God, not a weight that God wants to place on us to burden us. These commandments aren't given by, by an ogre or a selfish dictator. They come from the heart of the one who loves us and who wants only what is best for us. These come from the heart of the one who sends his one and only son into the world to live and to die for us. One who helps us in our trouble and directs our paths and whose plans for us are always good and right and perfect and best. And until we understand that, until the memory of who God is and what God has done is clear in our minds and our hearts, these commands will have a tendency to feel like legalism and bondage and restriction. And in one way or another, we will reject them. I mean, honestly, the word commandment just feels a little bit negative to us. It has negative connotations in our culture. Someone says, don't do that. What's our first response? I want to do it. When we see wet paint, don't touch, don't cross, what do we do? We want to feel it, touch it, cross it. I mean, that's our natural human response. Who are they to tell me what to do? And that easily crosses over into our relationship with God. And we view these commandments and we view the things from God as though they're a burden to us. But as Dennis Kinlaw says, how would keeping the law be a burden? Do we really believe that living with a divided heart is easier than living with a single heart? Are we better off having no respect for those who gave us life? Are we really better off never being content with what we have? The Ten Commandments are not intended to be burdensome for us. They're really the charter of our freedom. The Ten Commandments are a lot like a train that is traveling down a track to our highest dreams and goals and fulfillment. It's a train that takes us to the greatest blessings the blessings of God that anyone could ever experience. And knowing that that train's going that way, and that's the way God wants us to go, we can say, well, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm going to get on that train instead, because I want to be free. We can do that. But that train's going to lead us in the opposite direction from all of our highest hopes and dreams and the blessings of God. And we think that taking that train leads us to freedom. That's the train of bondage. That's the train of freedom. And as Lewis reminds us in Mere Christianity, we may be content to remain what we call ordinary people, but God is not. God has a different plan for us. And when we think God just wants to make of us a decent little cottage, His plan is to make of us a palace. And that's God's purpose for the gift of the Ten Commandments. You know, Friday morning I was, I was watching the, a few moments of the NBC's Today Show. 
And, and I happened to see a segment that was highlighting a, a new study that just came out suggesting that there is a connection to hyperactivity in children and some of the chemicals that are put in children's food to flavor and to color it. And then they had this brief video report, and afterwards Matt Lauer did an in-studio interview with a pediatrician, uh, Dr. Tanya Reamer Altman. And she was quick to point out that, you know, this is a brand new study, more needs to be done, you know, we need to be a little bit cautious of it. And, but I really was less interested in the study than I was in the conversation that took place between this pediatrician and Matt Lauer. In response to Matt's question about using caution in relation to this study, she said, well, the study aside, we know that healthy, natural food options are better for your children. I mean, they should be eating fresh fruits and vegetables instead of processed fruit snacks and sugary beverages. Now, it was at that point that I just about turned the television off because I was deeply offended by that, but no, that's beside the point, I guess. Matt then said, well, you know, there's a woman in the video who says that she only serves her children natural foods. And he said, that's wonderful, sounds great, but how hard is that to carry out in today's day and age? And she said, well, I think it's something very important. In fact, in my practice, even before this study came out, I challenge all my parents of infants and toddlers to not introduce fruit juices to their child's diet. Get them used to drinking water as their beverage of choice as an infant. And she said, years later, most of these parents come back and they thank me. Because they said making healthy food choices for the infants and toddlers really helped dictate the foods that these children were going to eat later in life. And then Matt said to her, you know, I read an article recently that expressed some concern that said that if you do this to your children, as though doing this would punish your children, but if you do this to your children, there will be a social impact on them because they're drinking water and all of their friends are drinking juice boxes. What do you think about that? And I sat there waiting for her answer. And she said... Well, as a parent, there are always going to be things that your children want to do that aren't going to be healthy or good for them. And as, your, as a parent, it's your responsibility to set limits for their good. And I thought to myself, how much more our Heavenly Father? Is it possible that in a higher, greater, more profound sense than processed fruit juice boxes, that God gives us commands because He can see more than we can see. That these commandments are not, that seem like limits, are not meant to harm us. They're meant to bless us and protect us and nurture us. It's His means of loving us. They're not restrictions on our freedom. They're actually the means by which our loving, trustworthy Heavenly Father sets us free to live in fulfillment and blessing. Because His perspective is so much bigger than ours could ever be. I wonder if during the next few months... If you'd be willing to ask God to give you a new spirit of openness toward these commandments, would you ask God to help you to see them as a gift, not an obligation? As the path to fullness and joy rather than to bondage and legalism?
And most of all, will you ask God to help you recognize that they are best for you because they come from the heart of the one whose desire is to set you free. Heavenly Father, help us to see your commands in a new light. Help us to realize that you give them to us to bless us, not to harm us. To free us, not to bind us. And to make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And use your commands to make us new people. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen.